This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and if you'd like to, give us a rating and a review. Now this week we've returned to the turbulent Tudor period during the reign of King Henry VIII. Between 1530 and 1536, Henry had divorced his first wife, rejected the authority of the Pope, declared himself head of the church in England, married his second wife, had her beheaded, became a father to another daughter, and had two key members of the establishment executed. A key event in the religious reforms of Henry VIII was the dissolution of the monasteries, which between 1536 and 1540 saw the suppression of approximately 900 religious houses across England and Wales, and the execution of around 200 members of the religious orders and laymen. Joining me to discuss how this religious revolution came about and what happened to thousands of displaced monks and nuns is senior properties historian with English Heritage, Dr Michael Carter. It's a real pleasure to be back. I'd like to start off discussing, first of all, why Henry turned against the Pope and the monasteries. But just before we get into that, could you tell us how established these monasteries were in England by the mid-1530s? Well, they'd been part of the English religious, social, economic and political landscape for the best part of a thousand years by the turn of the 16th century. And, you know, we can go right back to the monastery founded in Canterbury by St Augustine, which bears his name in the late Middle Ages, you know, the end of the 6th century. And it had been monks who had pioneered the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity and they remained just as important in later centuries and princes and paupers alike turned to monasteries for their spiritual services entrusting the various orders of monks, nuns, canons and friars with the salvation of their souls. So what did the role of the monasteries have in society then? Well it's from top to bottom uh, the heads of various religious houses took on important local administrative duties, justices of the peace, commissioners of the sewers, which basically means proper drainage, collecting corn in times of dearth. Some of them are even become trusted councillors of kings, the marvellously named Marmaduke Hubie of Fountains Abbey at the end of the 15th, early 16th century is an example that they were important sources of charity and education. Gisborough Priory in Cleveland, former Yorkshire, has a school from the 13th century. Furness Abbey in um, what was Lancashire, now Cumbria, was in distributing enormous amounts of food at its gates and had an arms house. They're massive employers. It's been estimated that for every monk or nun, there were three servants at larger monasteries. And they're massive engines for economic change. The landscape of northern England, thanks to the sheep farming of the Cistercians, is still affected by the interventions of the monastic orders to this day and metalworking, mining. And let's not forget as well their artistic role, that they are at the forefront of artistic change in this country. And in the early 16th century, the monasteries are very, very important, key players in the introduction of what we'd now term Renaissance ornament, Renaissance design. 
And also, their monks and nuns were very important as chroniclers of the times. Uh, and it's thanks to them that we have documentary evidence a lot of the time, don't we? Yeah, I mean, a lot of our sources for uh, medieval history come from the monasteries. And that's one thing that gets up the noses of religious reformers as well. They don't like monkish history because it doesn't accord to their worldview because it's very explicit from, you know, the church as established in, in medieval England owes its roots by and large to a mission that comes from Rome. And the English church has incredibly strong links. The Anglo-Saxon church onwards has very, very strong links with the papacy thereafter. And that doesn't fit at all with the kind of church that Henry and some of his advisors are trying to create. So here comes the kind of crack in the wall and the there's a bit of a schism forming here. Um, obviously, you touched on the benefits to society, the beneficence and the employment benefits and the economic aspects, but I'm suspecting that perhaps these monasteries were getting a little bit too big for their boots. Were, were they growing too rich and too powerful? Was that one of the reasons why Henry was not happy with them as well? Well, that's a traditional view of the monasteries. It's very, very well established in English historiography. A lot of listeners will have used the architectural guides written by Nicholas Pevsner, and he condemns the abbot's house built at Ford Abbey in Dorset by one of its late medieval abbots called Thomas Chart has been on a scale to justify the Reformation and disillusion. Well, perhaps up to a quarter of all land in England was owned by the church. So, you know, monasteries were major landowners. And some were very, very rich indeed. And they were economically and politically powerful. And that could lead to resentment. You know, the town of Bury St Edmunds was dependent on its monastery. And, you know, the townspeople don't like it. They break into the monastery at one point and there are deaths. And the abbey builds a great gate in the 14th century as a reaction to this. But let's be a bit cautious. The monasteries are, as I said, very, very big employers, and they're deeply, deeply rooted in their environments. Yes, there are local spats. There are loads of local spats between monasteries and their tenants and, and other people in their locality. The court records of medieval England are littered with such disputes. But people are still turning to them for livelihoods and also making bequests to monasteries, seeking their spiritual services, turning them to the salvation of their souls, and also turning them for other services, economic services, practical services, depositing their goods there, trusting abbots and priors and prioresses as being executors, right until the very moment of the suppression. And who actually profits from the disillusion and who writes this narrative of monasteries being too rich and powerful? Well, it's the people who do very well out of it indeed. And by and large, that is Henry and the already landed elite. That's very interesting. Of course, uh, the old saying goes that history is written by the victors, in this case, the oppressors. So what was this first event in the chain reaction that led to the dissolution of the monasteries in England? I gather that actually that calls for reform of the church actually started in modern day Germany. Well, I think that needs a lot of unpacking, to be honest. And calls for reform of monasticism go right back almost to its very origins, as we understand it, in the, you know, the late Roman world. And it was constantly reforming and renewing itself, adjusting to the world around it. And some of the great orders that, whose names um, people might be familiar with, such as the Cistercians, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, 
were all as a result of efforts to reform monasticism, make it more rigorous and applicable to the world around it. And throughout the Middle Ages, that there are programs of internal reform within monasteries and orders. Now, it has its opponents. And in the late 14th century in England, you have the Lollards, who are a kind of proto-Protestantism, and they reject a lot of the tenets of traditional religion. And one of those, as far as the monasteries are concerned, is intercessory prayer for the dead and monasteries as being a repository of relics of Christ from his passion and various holy personages. But what you're talking about earlier was the German Reformation, which has its genesis in 1517, when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church in Wittenberg. Now, an interesting fact about Luther is that he isn't an Augustinian or Austin friar. He is a member of a religious order, and he's actually depicted by the great propagandist of the Reformation, Lucas Cranach, in one of these portraits of Luther wearing this habit, looking very, very austere indeed. But Luther comes to a conclusion that so much of the apparatus of the late medieval church is just superfluous, and you secure salvation not through the good works with which monasteries are associated, or intercessory prayer for the dead, for instance, but it is through your faith in Christ alone. Good works are rejected. You are, in the words of the time, you are justified by faith alone. Let's get on to the issue of the battle between Henry and the Pope. Things are gradually coming to a head, but actually Henry is bestowed with the title Defender of the Faith, after Henry publicly took issue with Lutherism. How did Henry turn against the Pope during his marriage to Catherine of Aragon? Well, yeah, Henry starts off as a good Catholic, if you want to use that term. He's a good adherent of traditional religion. He actually makes pilgrimages to monasteries. He goes to Walsingham and a candle burns there of the king's gift in front of the image of the Virgin. He makes a pious offering to the miraculous image of Christ at Boxley Abbey in Kent. And he is utterly a appalled by Lutheran writings. He publishes in 1521 The Defence of the Seven Sacraments, for which the Pope awards him the title Defender of the Faith. But a whole conjunction of political and domestic causes come together, and he starts to listen to the cause of reform because he can't get a male heir. And what to a medieval and early Renaissance monarchs, or indeed any monarch need most of all, is a healthy male heir to carry on their line. And Catherine of Aragon, his once beloved wife, isn't doing that. They have several stillborn children, and all he has got is Mary, who is a girl, and there has never been a queen in her own right in English history prior to this. And some people are actually doubting if that is actually legally possible. So despite getting praised as defender of the faith by the Pope, suddenly events are changing and he needs to actually change his position and therefore he needs to change the rules. Mm -hmm. And that comes to a head as he uh, tries to get his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled after a long time. Because they've married for a long time, aren't they? They were. And the annulment process goes on for quite a long time. And it had been expected that Catherine would quite quietly give in and honourably retire to a nunnery. And then let Henry marry one of his many mistresses up to that time, Anne Boleyn, but she's held out. You know, she hasn't succumbed to Henry's wiles before, you know, getting the commitment of marriage. 
But there's another thing that's important about Anne Boleyn. You know, he can, the, the Pope won't grant the annulment, and there's and there's for various reasons of high politics in Europe that that's the case. And Henry just loses patience, and he declares himself on very, very spurious historical grounds. He tries to find a historical justification for this, but he certainly can't find it in monkish history. But and you know, and in fact, historical grounds which are laughed at across most of Europe, being mythical. But he declares himself that England is an empire in its own right, and and he declares himself head of the church in England and marries Anne Boleyn. Now Anne has very strong evangelical leanings and. So do a number of key advisors who come into the court at that time. There's the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and also Thomas Cromwell. And how have historians looked on these events surrounding the dissolution of the monasteries before now? Well, it's a historical view of it, a traditional view established in the late 16th century, very much written by the winning Protestant side, has influenced traditional English historiography of this to very recent times, it must be said. John Fox and his famous Acts and Monuments of the English Martyrs, which basically portrays monks as being decadent, cruel and superfluous. And then, you know, it did find, you know, reflections in modern scholarship, which has tended to say that monasteries were full of vigour until the end of the 12th century and perhaps into the early 13th century. But then, oh dear, a sorry period of long decline then sits in, leading to the disillusion when the whole sorry business is put out of its misery by Henry VIII. And in terms of 20th century scholarship, there are two names you need to know who advanced this thesis. They were both Cambridge dons, and the first is G. G. Coulson, and he was actually he was a vociferous anti-Catholic. And the other one is Professor Dom David Knowles, and the Dom in his title is very significant. He was a Benedictine monk, so that really, really lent credence to this idea of monastic decadence and decline in the later Middle Ages. And he judged the orders very, very harshly in the late Middle Ages against the ideals of their founders and found them sadly lacking. You know, all historians are affected by their upbringing and their circumstances. Knowles had a very, very troubled monastic vocation. And I think that some of his attacks on concepts of decline in the late Middle Ages were a reflection of his own failings or perceive what he saw as his failings as a Benedictine monk. He wasn't keeping his vows. He wasn't living up to those Benedictine ideals. And he saw that as well in the monks of the late Middle Ages. That's very interesting. People putting their own impressions and own experiences onto the past and then reading the past through their own sort of lens. Are these people both in the 20th, 20th century? Yep, they were both 20th century historians, and I am in awe of their scholarship. And you can turn to their works, their writings, and be amazed with just how much work they were doing, what they were finding out. And I don't want to criticise them in any way in that respect, but they were both products of their time, both products of their upbringing, both products of the prejudices that came with them. So the next question inevitably is, how do we look upon these events as historians today in the 21st century? Well, it's a very, very lively area of debate. Now, there had been some defence of the monasteries in earlier historiography, and one of them was Cardinal Adrian Gasket, and you can probably guess from the title I just gave him what side he was coming from. But he basically argued that the monasteries weren't as bad as were made out. 
and Coulson really, really had a problem with Gasquet, it must be said. He published a very lengthy article called The Errors of Cardinal Gasquet. But in reality, actually, even though Gasquet was nowhere near as good a scholar as Coulson, it must be said, but actually a lot of modern scholars would agree that Gasquet was closer to the truth than Coulson was. There has been a major reappraisal of religion in England on the eve of the Reformation, showing that it was by and large popular and vibrant. Some uh, historians have been accused of writing a history of religion without Protestants, but there's been a correction of that, but even allowing for the genuine intensity of some people's evangelical faith and just what a major release that was for them and how it engaged their souls and just the excitement of being able to read the word of Christ for yourself. But even allowing for that, a lot of people, probably a substantial majority of the population, were more than satisfied with traditional late medieval religion. It is a very, very lively area of scholarly debate indeed, and there are still some scholars who are not convinced about this at all. And I think that public perceptions, I'd have to say, still more or less closely align with those established right back in the 16th century. I certainly know that from English Heritage members tours that I've done. People are genuinely surprised, if not confounded, by some of the evidence I present to them of the popularity of monasteries, of the vibrancy of monasteries, and how some of them were cut off in a kind of second prime. And let's not forget that monasteries survive very, very well in large parts of continental Europe. You know, it wasn't that the institution itself had had its day. And these continental monasteries were often reforming themselves very successfully as well. I think uh, we'll continue to debate it. And obviously, history is always nuanced, isn't it? Between It is, and rightly so as well. And what drives forward understanding is debate. And I think what is emerging is a nuanced view of religion more generally in England on the eve of the Reformation, but also monasticism. And it's an uneven landscape. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to what's going on in England in the 16th century. I mean, most historians now working on this would identify as being secular. And this general secularisation of England, England becoming to a large extent a post-Christian society, has allowed these debates to take place. Well, bearing in mind this nuanced approach that we are now kind of taking to the dissolution of the monasteries, is it right in saying as well that there's a nuanced approach to this dissolution as it was happening? Was it a gradual, peppered kind of thing? Because I gather that suppression and closing down of monasteries actually began well before 1535. Well, there's no two ways about it. There was nothing new about dissolving monasteries by the time we get to the 1530s. There'd been a whole wave of suppressions and disillusions between the 13th and 15th century when so-called alien priories, their monasteries dependent on a bigger monastery in France, were being closed or amalgamated with other religious houses. And it's also the case that by the time we get to the late Middle Ages, some monasteries just weren't viable and simply ceased to exist. I mean, Creek Abbey in Norfolk, an English heritage site, is a good example. It just simply dies out at the turn of the 16th century, likely because of a visitation of the plague, and its endowments are put to other pious purposes. And Cardinal Wolsey, Henry VIII's chief minister, closes down 20 or so, so small religious houses. 
redirecting their endowments to his educational establishments in Oxford and Ipswich. And he's ably assisted in this by one Thomas Cromwell, who learns some skills and makes a web of contacts which prove very, very useful to him indeed when the bigger wave of suppressions come. But also, these small disillusions aren't universally popular, and they set up enmities that endure for generations, nor are they popular at the time in some instances. Bayham Abbey, English heritage site in Sussex, is closed down in 1525, and that's much to the annoyance of the local population who rise up in opposition to what has happened. That's very interesting. So this gradual change of um, mini dissolutions, shall we say, in some of these monasteries dying out, was that a, a deliberate thing that was set up by Henry VIII and the establishment to sort of do it on the quiet to start with and then go big later on? It's open to debate. I don't, I don't think there's any plan for a, a programme of wholesale dissolutions in the 1520s whatsoever. You know, the monasteries are still a key part of life. Uh, Henry's still a good adherent of traditional religion. Proponents of the evangelical cause are few and far between and aren't very powerful at that time. And indeed, Dermot McCulloch, brilliant Tudor historian and a historian of the church, in his recent biography of Thomas Cromwell, would argue that there was never a plan for wholesale dissolutions, and they actually came around by accident. It's not an argument I would completely agree with, but it certainly got me thinking. Okay, that's very interesting to consider. When did the dissolution pick up pace then? Well, Henry marries Anne Boleyn, and he's declared head of the Church of England, 1534, Acts of supremacy, recognising him as head of the church and an act of succession. That's the legitimacy of any offspring with Anne a past. And everybody in the realm is required to swear adherence to it. And that includes members of the monastic and religious orders. And some just aren't having it. In 1535, the observant Franciscans, they're especially austere Franciscans down in London, and some Carthusians refuse to sign up and they pay for it with their lives. Right. So, you know, there's an early wave of disillusions there. Right. But as the axe starts to fall, how many monasteries and nunneries are affected and over what period? Well, then we have some key events in the dissolution. In 1535, under Thomas Cromwell's direction, we have a great valuation of ecclesiastical property called the Valor Ecclesiasticus. And we also have a visitation of the monasteries with the express purpose of finding fault. And all of this leads in 1536 to an act for the suppression of smaller monasteries. That's monasteries with an income below £200 a year and fewer than 12 inmates. And the act is very, very pejorative in its language. It says, where manifest sin is daily practised. Now, there's an opportunity for some monasteries to get exemption from this, especially if you play Thomas Cromwell, a very, very large bribe indeed. And you also get Cromwell and some of his supporters, or to be more pejorative henchmen, deliberately intervening in the lives of monasteries to undermine discipline, the authority of abbots at that time, or impose abbots who are going to be much, much more compliant with their views. And much on the Abbey is an early example of it in the early 1530s. Its aged abbot is bullied into resigning by Cromwell and Henry VIII, and he's replaced by an 
utterly unsuitable a young chap, Abbot Ide, who, you know, the monastery just goes to wreck and ruin under him. Fascinating. Well, we've seen that happen in history a lot with puppet leaders being set up in yeah. various states. So that's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. It's a propaganda war, isn't it, really? Well, They're trying to change it from the inside. There is some of that, but there are also people within monasteries who actually are very much persuaded by the evangelical cause. It's not a one-sided argument. It's mm. not that everybody within monasteries thinks they are brilliant. You know, it's some of them realise, gosh, I have made a terrible mistake in my religious beliefs and also my way of life. That's very interesting. That brings on the sort of the nuanced idea again, doesn't it, really? So did the people in the monasteries tolerate, rebel against or bow down to the changes? You mentioned that some actually were convinced that perhaps they should change. It's a kind of piecemeal process. You get the first suppressions in 1535, then some of the smaller monasteries in 1536. Now, the suppression of these smaller monasteries is one of the catalysts for two major rebellions, the Lincolnshire Rising and then much more seriously, a great rebellion in the north, which becomes known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. So, Michael, you've been describing how things have gradually started off piecemeal. There are some small dissolutions. Is there a further phase? There's a whole further wave of suppressions from 1537 onwards when the, what are called the Greater Monasteries come down. And by January 1540, every single monastery in England and Wales has been dissolved. In this period between 1535 and 40, what was the general sense? Was it that monasteries were tolerating? Were they rebelling? Or were they bowing down to the changes? Let's first of all focus on the, the monks, nuns, canons and friars themselves. And, you know, shall I start off by being positive? And I'm very much on the side of the vibrancy of the monasteries, but I'll put the alternative case first of all, that this was an opportunity for a significant, portion of monastic inmates to get a release from their vows and vows which had been taken in young life in your teens or very early 20s and subsequently regretted and a chance of an alternative future and some people probably didn't really want to be in a monastery in the first place and that could have been for some of the nuns who are marriageable daughters of gentry families gosh, I don't really want to be here, or it's not a perfect comparison, but, you know, my first job after university, age 21, within a couple of weeks of it, I rapidly realised I'd made a terrible mistake, but carried on with it for three years until the opportunity of voluntary redundancy came along, which I leapt upon. But you're under vows to God, and it's very difficult to escape from a monastery without being accused of apostasy. So, yep, here it comes along, I can get out. And perhaps as many as a quarter of inmates of religious houses either wanted release from their vows or were considered young enough, that's under the age of 25, to think, yeah, you need a second chance and off you can go. Now, the first round of suppressions, when the smaller monasteries are coming round, people who wanted to remain in the religious life were given the chance to transfer to a larger monastery, still very much standing at that time. And men who were in holy orders were given the chance to take a capacity, and that was to leave the cloister and become a priest in general society. When the second round of suppressions comes around, when the greater monasteries start to fall, well, there's nowhere to go, is there? So they start to offer pensions as a way of leaving. And they, can, and they range from being very generous indeed, as we'll see for abbots, to an absolute pittance for some nuns. 
And the experience of people within the cloisters is there's a whole range of experiences and attitudes towards it. You know, there is horror, trauma, grief and downright fury amongst some monks and nuns. They say it's lawful to rebel against the king because of what he's doing against the church. But there's also compliance for a whole range of motives. And there is also enthusiasm and an embrace for the reform. For instance, John Hooper, who is a monk at Cleve Abbey in Somerset, well, he becomes a convinced evangelical and he actually becomes a Protestant bishop under Edward VI. And he pays for his life because of his religious convictions. When Queen Mary comes to the throne, he's executed in 1555, burnt at the stake. So there's a whole range, there's a whole maelstrom of reactions to it. It's a very coloured and textured picture. Um, lots of different things going on, different viewpoints, and lots of different choices that people face as well. They either leave, or they're relocated, or um, they're paid off. And what was the practical real-life impact of these reforms then? Where did people live after their monasteries were dissolved? The actual fate of where people go differs quite a lot. If you've got a living as a priest, well, you'll go off to the parish where you are, or perhaps the greater church where you're serving as assistant clergy. We know of some who go off to be chaplains in gentry households. That's the um, fate of the last abbot of Byland in Yorkshire, for instance. And some, especially for the nuns, they have to go back to their family home. And I think some of them would have received quite a frosty reception. They're becoming a burden on their family. They didn't want them there in the first place. That's one of the reasons they're packed off to the nunnery. And I just can't help but empathise and think, gosh, what a life did they have. On the other side of things, though, I'm presuming that perhaps there were the people who went along with the reforms who sort of capitulated in a sense. Did any leaders of the monasteries profit from the from the dissolution? Oh, some do very, very well indeed. And if you're the abbot of a compliant abbot of a large monastery, you are very generously rewarded. Let's use the last abbot of Hales, English heritage site in Gloucestershire, Great Pilgrimage Church. Well, he goes along with the reforms. He gets on very well with Thomas Cromwell. And he is given a pension of £100 a year. That's an awful lot of money. And he also gets one of the former manor houses of the monastery as a residence. And he picks up various offices in the church as well. He becomes very, very wealthy indeed. And then there are some um, who really enthusiastically embrace the evangelical cause as well. Robert Holgate, who had been prior of Watton, he becomes quite a leading reformer. But for a lot of them, they take the money, retire to a manor house or a, a substantial house they've been given, and keep quiet, even though they may well be deeply, deeply uncomfortable with what they've signed up to. And yet at the opposite end of the scale, we have some quite strong resistance, particularly in the north of England, I understand. What happened there? In the northern counties especially, we have two major risings. There's the Lincolnshire Rebellion in 1536, and that's followed rapidly by the Pilgrimage of Grace. And it's a great northern uprising across all the northern counties, and it's partly motivated by the attack on the smaller monasteries. 
I mean, it's certainly a concern to defend traditional religion. And the monks of Sawley Abbey, their monastery has been suppressed in May 1536, and they are restored, it's said, by the love of the commons in October of that year. Why do you think that it was particularly stronger, the resistance in the north? I mean, monasteries are very, very deeply ingrained in local society. And they're also, northern monasteries are actually quite vibrant. Marmaduke Hubey, who I mentioned earlier, he a great reforming northern Cistercian abbot, abbot of fountains, he says it is in northern parts of England where the religion and ceremonies of the Cistercian order are especially well observed. And you get various other hints around this time about the vibrancy of northern monastic life and how popular they still remain. It struck me that, you know, jumping forward a few years, I found a will from November 1539 when a bloke in Leeds makes a substantial bequest to the monks at Kirkstall Abbey for prayers for his soul. The very next day, the monastery is dissolved. Oh, wow. Okay. So I wonder what happened to his prayers then. Um... (laughs) Hard to say. We've talked about there how the northern monasteries resisted. There was two large-scale rebellions. But what price did they pay? The monasteries assist in these rebellions in a number of ways. First of all, it must be said that a lot of them stay aloof. Rebelling against Henry VIII, they know, could have very, very serious consequences indeed. First of all, we've had the awful executions of the observant Franciscans and the London Carthusians. Just thinking what resistance to Henry's will is going to do, it could lead to your death. And, you know, people, you know, hung, drawn and quartered. Well, what does that actually mean? It means being hung and cut down whilst you're still alive, being disemboweled and castrated while still alive on the block, and then being dismembered and your body being exhibited, the fragments of your body being exhibited for public view. It is a horrible, horrible death. And that would make a lot of monks, abbots and priors think twice about siding with Henry. And also, they've taken an oath of allegiance to Henry, an oath-taking really mattered. But some are prepared to go a bit further, either willingly or because they're forced to by the commons, by the people who've risen in rebellion. The abbot of Sawley preaches a sermon saying it is lawful to take arms against the king in defence of religion. He's probably the guy who writes a marching song for the pilgrims as well. And monasteries come to the material aid of the pilgrims, giving them horses, food and cash. And a lot of monks are very, very keen on supporting it as well. They want to come out and join the pilgrims themselves and are encouraging them. The abbots want to steer a much more cautious course, it must be said. And poor old abbot John Paslew of Worley only backs the pilgrims when he fears that his monastery is going to be fired. And he then only makes a token gesture in support of them. And actually, he ultimately pays for it with his life. So out of the executions that took place, uh, were most towards the end or mid part of the dissolution around the 15... 36, 37 Well, period. you get a lot of executions as a consequence of the pilgrimage of grace. Henry is in a very, very weak position at the end of 1536. His army that's gathered under the Duke of Norfolk near Doncaster confronts the pilgrims and it's in a very weak position indeed. 
some of the great northern aristocrats have come out in support of the pilgrims and they've assembled a formidable force that the duke of norfolk who's in charge of the royal forces is actually doubtful of the loyalty of a lot of his men and there isn't then much standing in the way of the pilgrims in london but they are persuaded to reach a compromise and their leader richard ask actually spends christmas at the royal court and Henry goes back on his word and he provokes a minor recurrence of the rebellion and that provides a excuse for him to cancel pardons that have been issued at the end of 1536 and to move against the leaders of the pilgrimage. And the abbots and priors of a number of monasteries, often on quite shaky evidence and for very minimal support, are hung, drawn and quartered, including the abbot of Worley. The abbot of Sawley is condemned to death but probably dies beforehand. Some of his monks certainly suffer on the scaffold. A guy called James Cockrell, who had been prior of Gisborough, but is deposed by the commissioners of Thomas Cranwell and replaced. He tries to get his monastery back and is executed as a consequence. And so are some leading supporters of the pilgrimage as well. For instance, Robert Ask, who is hung in chains at Clifford Castle. It's a real marker that you do what Henry tells you to do. And uh, we have a whole other series of executions, small in number, it must be said, but just enough to engender terror. When the bigger monasteries have come down, the abbots of Colchester, Glastonbury, Reading and Woburn resist, and they are dealt with in brutal form and uh, executed. The, you know, the, the account of the execution of the aged abbot of Glastonbury is especially horrific. And it doesn't take that many people to be brutally hung, drawn and quartered for you to think, well, actually, you know what? That pension seems like a very, very good idea indeed. And also because there's very strong evidence that a lot of monks and nuns think that this is a temporary reversal and that their monasteries are going to come back one day. Well, I suppose in the middle of all this happening, then that's probably what you would hope for if that is, you know, if you're a person of faith. Out of all those names and places you've described where all this brutality and violence was happening and all these people were being carted off to be hung, drawn and quartered, were the executions quite widespread across England? Was it sort of dotted around on the map? You find them in most bits of the country. Most of them are dispatched by, you know, by being hung, drawn, and quartered, and they're, and, and they're executed as traitors. And this is what becomes the reason for executing Catholics in England right until the late 17th century. It's for treachery. But one former friar, a friar Forrest from the West Country, he is burnt at Smithfield for heresy. They burn him using a cult image, a venerated image taken from a monastery. So there are executions from people across the country. It sounds like almost hell had arrived for anyone who, who was a monk or a nun. It would have been a very scary time and place for them. What were the mental effects of these purges on these monks and nuns? For some of them, definitely. As I said, some definitely welcomed the changes. But yeah, just think of it, you know, in 1529, 1530, you think your monastery is going to be there forever. It's been endowed to last forever. You're there doing what you've been set up to do, singing for the souls of your benefactors, distributing charity, all your other spiritual services. And then within the space of what 10 years, everything goes. And for some monks and nuns, it had an enormous psychological effect. And 
One scholar has detected what he recognises as symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, the reaction of some former monks and nuns to the suppression of their monasteries. And there are cases of them dying with shock, or said to be dying of shock when, when the disillusion finally comes along. Prior Dokra, the last prior of the Priory of the Knights Hospitallers in London, is said to have died of grief when his monasteries was dissolved. And there was another case of a monk of Revo Abbey dropping dead very, very soon after the suppression of his house. But it was a another one would have just been sheer desperation of what am I going to do? What does my life now mean? And I suspect perhaps, maybe, some might have even questioned their faith. How could a god allow this to happen? But after being disbanded, did any former monks and nuns keep ties with each other? Yeah, there's considerable evidence of uh, community solidarity between former monks and nuns. In some instances, they even try and keep together some kind of communal life, some kind of monastic life. And we can use two English heritage monasteries from either end of the country to illustrate this. Monk Breton Priory in Yorkshire, several of the monks coalesce around their prior in a local manor house and live a kind of monastic life together. And they're actually buying back vestments and books that had been in the monastic library in, in the hope of restoring them, that the monastery is going to come back. And then Denny Abbey in Cambridgeshire, which is a Franciscan nunnery, a nunnery of poor Clares. The last abbess is Elizabeth Throckmorton and she retires to her family home in Warwickshire with several of her former nuns and they live a monastic life still wearing their brown Franciscan habits on the upper floor uh, of the manor house there but elsewhere we find that you know there are enduring bonds between the former monks and nuns as well they're remembering each other in their wills and I've found a number of ones where they mention a cash bequest to my brethren of such and such a monastery who may still be alive who were with me on the day of its disillusion. And what sort of job roles then did people have for their new lives? A lot of former monks, canons and friars are in holy order so they can become priests. There's a whole massive glut now of clerical talent on the market and not all of them manage it. Nuns have a harder life, especially because the prudish Henry has insisted they continue to live by their vow of chastity. So they don't even have the option of marriage. Some of them receive tiny, tiny pensions. Below a pound a year isn't uncommon, and you're going to struggle to live on that. Was the dissolution then successful, largely, or were there still pockets of resistance after 1540? Well, they've come down, and there's no doubt about it that some former monks retain an attachment to the religious life, but also some former monks and nuns have done very well out of this indeed. And so too have some of the gentry and aristocrats. And even if they possess traditional religious views, it hasn't stopped them from profiting from the suppression of the monasteries. For instance, Anthony Brown, who gets Battle Abbey, well, he's got very, very conservative religious views. He isn't happy at all about the religious reforms of Henry VIII, but he's more than happy to enrich himself and found a family fortune on former monastic land. And also we get some monks and nuns who will go into exile because they want to maintain their way of life. Some go to Scotland, where monasteries are still functioning at this time, and some go to the continent. Indeed, the whole community of Bridgetine nuns from Sion go off into exile. 
For the leaders of the monasteries who survived and perhaps profited from this, allowed all this violence and brutality to happen, how did they sort of live with themselves after that? It's a mixed picture. Some are more than able to accommodate it. And also remember that a lot of monasteries have been suppressed very, very peacefully and also with a minimum of fuss. But there is some evidence that some have real regret about what they have done and what they have participated in. And towards the end of their life, they're actually expressing this in their wills. A lot of them are dying off when Catholicism comes back in the reign of Queen Mary for five years, between 1553 and 1558. And you also find a lot of them retaining use of their former monastic titles. They'll say such and such former abbot or prior of or former prioress of They've lost a way of life and also they've lost a huge amount of status. Monasteries were great avenues of social mobility. You could come from, you know, a fairly humble background. You know, monks and nuns were recruited on the whole from fairly prosperous families. You know, you for monks, certainly you had to be Latin literary, but they could rise to be, you know, if you're head of a great monastery like Fountains of Revo, Hales, Battle you're almost got the status of an aristocrat and then all of a sudden you find yourself well you're not it's a very in- interesting interwoven picture of lots of different events and capitulation versus rebellion and and everything else in between when did monasteries actually return to england well i mean it's quite uneven uh, again they come back under mary 1553 to 1558 she restores six monasteries in and around london and there are clearly hopes for the restoration of more monasteries the surviving monks and abbots of roach and rufford english heritage monasteries in south yorkshire and nottinghamshire res- uh, respectively in 1554 take on their former monastic titles and that's probably because they're looking forward to their monasteries coming back. Now it comes to nothing because of uh, Mary's death in 1558 and the restoration of Protestantism by Elizabeth which sees the suppression of the monasteries that would be refounded by Mary. But in the years that follow you get English monasteries on the continent The English Benedictine community has a thread of continuity with its medieval past, but we also have numerous nunneries founded in modern-day Belgium and France and Spain, and also houses of friars, uh, Franciscans and Dominicans. And a lot of these Dominicans, friars and Benedictines come to England on missions, on Catholic missions, and pay for their faith with their lives. The last executions of members of religious orders, English religious orders, serving the needs of the English Catholic community in England occur as late as 1678. But monasteries, in, in a sort of formal sense, return in the late 18th century as a consequence of the French Revolution when they're forced to flee France and they settle in England and they proliferate in the 19th and 20th century. There's also some Anglican orders are established and that's because of this brief period when you have monasteries existing in the Church of England and you know that today they're starting to die out. How many survive in England just today then? 
Well, I, I don't actually, to be perfectly honest, I don't have a precise number. There are some, you know, very prominent ones like Downside and Ampleforth, which are communities of um, Benedictines, English Benedictines. But some of them are actually dying out. For instance, the last nun of Sion recently died, and they had an unbroken tradition going right back to the 15th century. But there are still some former monastic sites which have been reoccupied by the religious. And one I can think of is Aylesford Priory in Kent, where there's a small community of friars, very aged friars, there to this day. Bearing in mind everything that you've discussed, are there any modern parallels to be drawn between the events of the dissolution of the monasteries and today? You know, very little medieval art survives, to be honest. About 5% of all medieval art uh, is estimated to survive and probably lower for the monasteries. And even supporters of religious reform could look back with regret at this level of destruction. For instance, John Bale, who had been a Carmelite friar but became a white-hot Protestant, said of these years it was a wicked age much given to the destruction of things memorable. Great change brings great division. And that was certainly what was happening in mid-16th century England. The Reformation was contested and uncertain at every single stage of it. It's accidents of birth and death that mean that England ends up as a Protestant country. It could so easily have remained a bulwark of Catholicism. But these divisions can take generations to heal if they ever heal. And the last question, I suppose, is on the timeline, how long did it actually take from the dissolution to Protestantism being firmly established uh, as the Church of England faith, really? Well, in, you know, England has a very long and um, piecemeal reformation. You know, you have the early stages under Henry. And it's only with the accession of Elizabeth, really, that we get the Church of England established along the lines that it's recognised today. But even Elizabeth is pretty insecure at the beginning of her reign. I think some historians have argued, and probably quite convincingly, that people can see which way the wind is blowing, but people still, by and large, perhaps just because of when they were born, have an attachment to traditional religion. And if it had gone back to being a Catholic country, probably would have gone along with it. And also, it's probably only well into her reign that you have a majority of the population who don't have some way or another an attachment to traditional religion, to the beliefs of the medieval church. And also some historians would argue as well that, yep, England escapes a large-scale religious war in the 16th century, unlike the ones we see in France, for instance. Things like the suppression of the Prayerbrook Rebellion in the West under Edward VI is absolutely horrific and very, very bloody. And there are a number of rebellions provoked by religious changes in England. But some historians would argue that all England does with its reformation, it's this attempt of the Church of England to retain elements of both radical Protestantism and some of the ceremonies of medieval Catholicism. All that does is postpone a religious war to the 17th century, the civil war which is fought between two different groups of Protestants. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. 
Next week, we're uncovering the story of Dido Bell, the illegitimate daughter of an African woman and a naval officer who was raised as part of an aristocratic family at Kenwood in London. It's believed that Maria Bell was a slave, that a liaison took place, and Sir John arranged for her to be taken back to England where Dido was born. Thanks for listening. See you next time.